If you'll take your copy of Scripture and uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our sermon text today is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is on page 1014, using one of the Black Bibles. As you turn there, I'll just uh, note what a joy it is to be together as a church family on Easter Sunday. You know, we, we quickly forget, but if you think back a year ago, this time last year, we were in the early stages of COVID, and we, along with Christians all over the world, were in the unusual position of not being able to gather together on Easter Sunday to worship the Lord. And so many of us worshiped uh, in our homes, with our families, and uh, in the weeks and months that followed, we were reminded how much we need each other and what a privilege it is uh, to be together. So as we are here on Easter, uh, we can thank the Lord that He has uh, gifted us with this opportunity to worship together as one church family. I uh, also want to welcome those who are watching at home on live stream and uh, want you to know if you're a part of our church family how much we miss you, and uh, we hope that you'll be able to rejoin us in person soon. Uh, but we're glad that you're able to join us uh, on the live stream today. Well, let's look now at our sermon passage. Uh, if you'll follow along, I'm going to read for us 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. This is God's Word. I'll give you just a, a quick refresher uh, by way of reminder on the background of 1 Peter. As a church, we studied through this letter uh, a couple years ago in our Sunday morning Bible study cohorts. And if you were here at that time, you remember that 1 Peter is a, a letter written to Christians, and uh, one of the big ideas is how Christians can be faithful disciples of Jesus, how they can be faithful witnesses in the midst of a hostile culture. It was written by the Apostle Peter around 62, 63 A.D. Uh, you'll recall that Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. The night before Jesus was crucified, Peter famously vowed that he would never abandon Jesus. And then within just a few hours, he was so intimidated by a young servant girl that he denied three times that he even knew Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, a short time later, there's a beautiful encounter between Jesus and His disciples, including Peter, where Jesus showed His continued love for Peter, and He gave him a commission to feed my sheep. And that's what Peter went on to do. In the book of Acts, we have the account of the, uh, the early days of the Christian church, and Peter was a, a very prominent figure in the early spread of the gospel. 
Uh, he preached to uh, huge crowds. Uh, on more than one occasion, he was imprisoned uh, for his preaching, and he was instrumental in the spread of the, the gospel in the early days of the church. Uh, when Peter wrote this letter, uh, he was likely in prison in Rome, where he would be executed a few years later. So it would have been later in Peter's life when he wrote this letter. And again, the overarching idea of 1 Peter is, uh, is about how Christians can be faithful disciples, faithful witnesses in a hostile culture. It was written to Christians living in Asia at a time when they would have been suffering probably not an open, harsh persecution like uh, would come later, but they were experiencing more of a, a soft persecution, if you will, of being outsiders, uh, not fitting in with the culture around them. It's something we can very much relate to today as Christians in America in 2021. We're living in a, a time and a place where we're not suffering a, a sharp, life-threatening persecution, at least not at this time, um, but we do seem to be uh, that we're maybe in the, be the beginning stages of uh, feeling a, more of a soft persecution of being marginalized, being pushed to the sides in our culture. Even this can be a trying experience. You know, later in this letter, Peter refers to the suffering that his audience is enduring. Uh, he refers to it as uh, fiery trials uh, later on in, uh, in chapter 4, and he uh, refers to these Christians as exiles living away from their homeland, uh, not uh, at home in the place they really belong. So uh, he writes to Christians in this situation, and he brings them a message of hope. It's a message that very much relates to us and to our context today. So uh, I've entitled the sermon, Easter Hope for Christians in Exile. And I want us to see today what the resurrection of Jesus means for the Christian in the past, what it means for Christians in the future, and what it means today in the present. If you're a Christian today, you are living in exile. America is not your homeland. And yet, here's our outline for today, you have been born again. See this in verse 3. Next, we'll see that your inheritance awaits you, verses 4 and 5. And then finally, we'll see that your trials are brief, meaningful, and produce joy. You've been born again, your inheritance awaits you. Your trials are brief, meaningful, and they produce joy. So first, you have been born again. Uh, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The section opens with praise to God. Why is Peter praising God? What has God done? Well, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? Born again to a living hope. And how did he do it? He did it through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, as Christians, we're familiar with the idea of the new birth, right? We think about uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and the answer was not to slowly chip away around the edges of our problems. The answer was not to give us instructions on how to, uh, over time, improve ourselves. Uh, the answer was not to change the situation we were in. The answer was a total and complete rebirth. In this new birth, something uh, was brought about. Um, it, it was not something that we brought about. It was something, however, that God brought about. God is the one who caused us 
to be born again. He's the one who did it. He's the one who acted in order to bring about this new birth. And how did he do it? He did it through the resurrection of Jesus. Today's Easter Sunday. We're thinking about the resurrection of Christ. You may be new to Crawford Avenue. You may be new to Christianity altogether. So I just want to be really clear when uh, we're talking today about the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to know what we're talking about. The, the Bible teaches, and we as a church believe that uh, Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God. He was and is a real person. He lived physically on the earth 2,000 years ago. We believe that He lived a perfect life free of sin. We believe that He crucified he was crucified, he uh, died, uh, he was buried in a tomb, and then on the third day he was literally, physically, bodily raised from the dead. And so when we talk today about the resurrection of Jesus, we're not talking about uh, a symbolic resurrection. We're not talking about some sort of a mystical or a spiritual resurrection. We believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead. That's what we celebrate today. And we look at our text here, and on the one hand, we've got this idea of the new birth. We've heard this before in the Bible. Peter says, uh, you have been born again. He's echoing the words of Jesus, uh, who said, you must be born again. Then on the other hand, we've got Jesus' resurrection, which is it's not an analogy. It's not, um, uh, it, it is an actual historical event. Um, we've got these two ideas. So how do you connect the two? How do you connect the new birth of the Christian and the resurrection of Jesus? You could even ask, are they connected? These may not be things that we typically put together in our minds, but according to verse 3, they are very much connected. Um, God, uh, according to His mercy, this is the manner in which He did it, God caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus was crucified. He died. He was buried. God raised Him to life. And in that act, in the, the act of raising Jesus from the dead, raising him to life, within that act was the, the mechanism that brings about your new birth as a Christian. It brings about my new birth as a Christian. This is why Peter speaks of it as a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a stale hope. It's not a constructed or cobbled together or uh, kind of cross your fingers and hope it'll all work out type of hope. It is a living hope. Peter is alluding here to the reality of the Christian's union with Christ. The reality that Christians are united with Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the new birth. Verse 5, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So what does it mean for a Christian when we talk about being born again? It means being united with Christ. United with Him in His death. United with Him in His resurrection if you belong to Christ, when He died, you died. When He was raised to life, you were raised to life. One commentator says, Christ's resurrection spells hope for us not just because He lives, but because by God's mercy, we live. 
By the resurrection of Christ, God has given life not only to him, but to us. We are given new birth by God. He fathers us by the resurrection of his son. This writer goes on to acknowledge that if we think about the new birth and we think only uh, internally, which I think is what we do sometimes, we think uh, new birth and being born again, we think internally about the heart change that happens inside of us. Uh, But if we only think in those terms, then uh, we probably don't understand the connection between our new birth and Christ's resurrection. So we've got to think of the the complete picture. Uh, It's not just us. It's not just inside of us. It's us united to Christ. So uh, this writer summarizes Peter's point. He says, the means of our new birth is not first the message of the resurrection. It is the fact of the resurrection. When Christ rose, he secured our salvation. You know, many of us struggle uh, at one time or another uh, in our lives with wondering, um, doubting maybe, if we're really saved. We wonder, am am I really a Christian? I I thought I was. I think I am. I want to be a Christian, but I'm just not sure. What if if I lose hold of Christ? What if I I mess up and uh, Christ rejects me? And all this time I I thought I was in Him, and then at the end of my life I find out I wasn't. Um, Scripture Scripture does call us to persevere in our faith, right? uh, We're called to take hold of eternal life. We're called to guard our hearts, to guard the truth of the gospel, to pursue salvation in Christ. But one of the things we see in this passage today is that ultimately, if you've been born again, that happens in connection with the resurrection of Jesus. It happened because of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It happened uh, by being tied to the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection cannot be undone. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus' resurrection cannot be undone. Your new birth is tied to his resurrection. Therefore, your salvation is secure for all eternity. Even though our salvation is still being worked out, even though there is a, there's an already and a not yet dynamic at play in, in our Christian walk, even though our full and final salvation is still to come, it is safe. It is secure, inseparably tied to the resurrection of Jesus himself. So the first bit of Easter hope for Christians in exile is this truth that you have been born again. It's a past reality. It's rooted in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Himself. The second uh, piece of hope that Peter offers to Christians in exile is the reality that your inheritance awaits you. Your inheritance awaits you. And this is verses 4 and 5. Peter says that you have been born again, and then verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, our first point called us to look back at the resurrection of Jesus, something in the past, and now these verses are calling us to look forward to something in the future. Verse 4 says that we have been born again to an inheritance, and an inheritance, by definition, is something in the future. It's something yet to come. It's something we anticipate receiving. If a, a parent or a grandparent is 
going to leave you an inheritance. You don't receive it today. You receive it at some point down the road. What is the Christian's inheritance? One commentator says it's not simply a land or a city or even a new earth. It is all that God will give us, His salvation. Romans 8, 17, Paul says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. If we suffer now with Christ, then in the future we will be glorified with Jesus and we'll receive the same inheritance that Jesus Himself receives. So we look forward to this. It's it's in the future. Now, whenever we anticipate something in the future, I think often, maybe almost always, we worry, will that thing still be there in the future? So if you're uh, driving through the parking lot at Kroger and you see there's a good parking space over there on that other row, you want to hurry and get there because you worry it might not be there when, when you get there. If you're going to a movie, you want to get there on time so you can get a good seat. If you're late, the, seat, the, the good seat might be gone. Think in terms of an inheritance. You know, what if my dad promises me all of his money and then later in his life he starts spending, spending, spending? And I, you know, I might be tempted to think, hmm, I wonder if there's going to be anything left for me. Well, uh, Peter uses three words here to describe our inheritance. And these words are chosen specifically to reassure us that our inheritance is not going anywhere. Look in verse 4. Our inheritance is imperishable. It cannot die. It cannot wear out. It can't rust or corrode or get holes in it. It will last forever. It is undefiled. This same word, undefiled, is used in other places in Scripture to describe the sinlessness of Jesus. It's perfect. It cannot spoil. There's no flaw in it. And it's unfading. It won't get old. It can't be used up. It won't be here one day and fade away the next, but it will last forever. I uh, brought with me today one of my most treasured physical possessions. This is a baseball, and it's signed by several members of the 1991 Atlanta Braves. If you know anything about baseball, that was a good year to be a Braves fan. And uh, I didn't buy this baseball already signed. This is a ball that, as a kid, I handed to players, watched them sign it, and they gave it back to me. So uh, I've got Mark Limke on here. Uh, I've got Pete Smith, uh, a couple Hall of Famers, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz. There's actually one autograph over here, and I'm not sure who it is. (laughs) One, because it was 30 years ago and I don't remember, but the ink has started to fade. And I can't quite make it out anymore. Actually, all of these signatures have started to fade somewhat. But this one is so faint that I can barely even see that it's there. Now, I imagine that one day my kids, if they want it, will inherit this baseball. This will be their inheritance. But this literally is a fading inheritance. The more time goes by, the less obvious it will be what what this is, and it will fade over time. And uh, what Peter's saying here is that our inheritance... Uh, In the future, if you're a Christian, the inheritance that we're promised in Christ is not like this. As time goes by, it's not going to fade. It's not going to dim. It's not going to slowly be used up and disappear. But instead, as time goes by, it will become more beautiful. It will shine all the brighter. So this is why he describes our inheritance the way it does. 
Although we will not receive our inheritance until some point in the future, our inheritance is very much a reality today. Where is it? In verse 4 again, it says that our inheritance is kept in heaven. It's in the city of God. It's not here on earth where we can see it, where we can touch it now. If, if that were the case, it wouldn't be a very special inheritance. Uh, instead, it's, it's holy. It's set apart. It's different from anything we've seen or experienced before. It's so unique that it's kept in God's city. Although it's in heaven, it's kept there for us. It's not kept there so that it'll be out of reach, you know, like it was behind museum glass or something. Like, you can kind of know about it and see it, but you can't really, like, touch it. You can't be close to it. That's not why it's kept in heaven. It's kept in heaven so that uh, it will be there for us one day to enjoy. It's kept there for us. Not only is our inheritance being kept for us, but we are being kept for our inheritance. Verse 5 says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Down in uh, verse 7 in a moment, Peter will talk about how precious our faith is. And here's a reason why, because it's through our faith that God guards us and keeps us for His salvation. One writer notes, uh, God keeps His finished salvation for us and us for His salvation, but He does not keep us in a cage against our will. God who works for us also works in us. Our faith is His way of keeping us. It is His gift. Why does God use faith as the instrument of His keeping power? Because faith is not our achievement, but trust in God's achievement. This is part of the comfort. This is part of the hope that Peter offers to his readers. This was achieved for Christians in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So if we want to talk about Easter hope for exiled Christians, we have to think about the inheritance that is waiting for us, that is guaranteed to us. Not only is our inheritance being kept for us, but we are being kept for our inheritance. You can pause here and just reflect for a moment. Maybe think about a specific trial or a specific difficulty that you've endured recently. Maybe it's uh, some kind of suffering that you're enduring today. Maybe work isn't going well. Maybe money is really tight. Maybe you are navigating some serious health problems. Maybe an overwhelming depression, uh, sadness that just won't go away, a sense of hopelessness all around. Maybe your spouse isn't loving you well. Maybe you'd give anything to have a spouse and God has not yet answered that prayer. Maybe it's a wayward child who's rejecting the truth you've taught them. Maybe you're being rejected in your family or in your workplace or in your school because of your faith. Whatever, whatever trial or suffering you're enduring, where do you look for hope in the midst of that difficulty? What do you long for in the midst of your suffering? Now, often we can't think any further than our immediate situation. We just want our situation to change. We just want the problem to go away. Have you ever considered looking to your future inheritance as a place to find hope in the midst of your trials? If you're a Christian, you've been promised that you will share in Christ's inheritance. You will rule with Him. You will live forever in a perfectly remade world in the presence of God. So how might these realities speak to the suffering you're enduring right now? How, how should we endure trials differently because of the inheritance 
that's being kept for us in the future. I think Peter is saying here, in the face of fiery trials, the things we have been promised in the future are one of the first places we should look for hope and comfort. So if you're a Christian, you have been born again. This is in the past. Your inheritance awaits you. This is in the future. And now third, your trials are brief, meaningful, and produce joy. This is in verses 6 through 9. Your trials are brief, meaningful, and produce joy. So to this point, Peter's talked about the past and the future, but what about right now? What is the present experience of one who is following Jesus? Well, to use the language of verse 6, at least in part, the present experience of one who follows Jesus means being grieved by various trials. Now, that may not be the most encouraging thing to read, but uh, if you stop and think about it, we really don't have to read this to know this, right? Our experience tells us this, that our lives are filled with trouble. Scripture does attest to it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Think of uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes. He observed that all of our days are filled with grief and pain. But we know this. We know this intuitively. You don't have to get very far into adulthood to see that life is full of suffering, difficulty, trials, Many of us even learn this reality in childhood. Your dog dies. Your parents divorce. Your house is broken into. There's the, this one temptation to sin that just won't leave you alone. Can't seem to get beyond it. The cancer keeps coming back. Your girlfriend dumps you. Your boss hates you. There's big things or little things. Our entire lives are filled with trials, with difficulties, with suffering. God speaks to us here through Peter and shows us a few things to help guide how we think about the difficulties of life. Peter observes that our suffering is brief. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. A little while. Peter isn't seeking to minimize our suffering, but he is trying to put it in context for us. He's just finished speaking about the inheritance that awaits us in eternity. We tend to think of our lives as being kind of long, drawn-out journeys, 70 or 80 or 90 years, a very long time. It's really not, especially when you put it alongside eternity that awaits us in the future. Compared to hundreds of thousands of years, to eternity still to come in the future, there is no comparison. Even if every day of our lives here on earth is marked by misery and suffering, even if it's every day for your entire life, compare that to an eternity of life, peace, and blessing, and joy, and perfection, the absence of sin, the presence of God. Again, Peter doesn't say this to dismiss or to minimize our suffering, but he's just trying to give us the bigger picture. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this idea. He wrote, This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards 
and turn even that agony into a glory. And that is why at the, the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. Our suffering is brief, and this gives us hope. Next, Peter tells us that our suffering has purpose. It, it is meaningful. Verse 6 again, he says that we suffer for a little while if necessary. And what does that mean? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials. Who says it's necessary? Necessary for what? Wayne Grudem comments, it seems evident that Peter means if necessary, in God's sight. And this is an idea which would greatly encourage his readers. Now, how would it encourage the reader? How does it encourage you to read that your suffering is necessary in God's sight? John Calvin, the reformer, says that Peter's purpose here was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason, for if God afflicted us without a cause, it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God, not because the purpose always appears to us, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so because it is God's will. Grudem again says, Peter says that Christians will experience grief only as it is necessary in light of God's great and infinitely wise purposes for them. So why is it necessary that we suffer? In a lot of cases, we have no idea. We don't know why God allows the pain or the abandonment or the sickness or the poverty or the depression or the perse persecution. Uh, we don't understand how these things could be necessary in God's eyes. But we do know that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things we encounter in life. We know that He is good in all that He does. So therefore, He has a good purpose in our trials. So God determines in His wisdom that it is necessary for us to face various trials, but toward what end? What's the, what's the goal of those trials? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the sufferings of life that God determines are necessary for us are intended to demonstrate that our faith is genuine. You know, Scripture tells us that uh, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If you can see the whole story, if you can see every detail every nuance, every in and out, you know the whole thing. There's no faith involved there. You just know what the situation is. But when you can't see the whole picture, when you don't know the reason behind everything, that is when faith springs to life. This is why Peter writes that our faith is more precious than gold. Gold is one of the most durable and lasting things of value known to man, but even gold is not as lasting it's not as durable, it's certainly not as valuable as tested, genuine faith. What is the outcome of such faith? What's the greatest thing we can imagine? Verse 9, the salvation 
of your souls. So we don't have a full explanation here for why we suffer in every individual way that we do in our lives. We're not told why individual Christians suffer differently. The suffering I encounter is not the suffering you'll encounter. It's not the suffering they'll encounter. Some of us will suffer more than others. We don't know why this is. But we are told that we endure trials because God deems it necessary and so that our faith will be proven to be genuine. We're told that our suffering is meaningful. It has purpose. And this gives us hope. And then, uh, finally, Peter also observes that our suffering produces joy. The beginning of verse 6, in this you rejoice. So you rejoice now as you think about the past and the future. And then at the end of uh, verse 7, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I really like uh, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, it's hard to be a Christian like 2,000 years after Jesus lived. It would have been so much easier if I lived in Bible times and um, it just would have been easier to follow God in, at that point in, in human history. Well, guess what? Most people in Bible times were in the same position that we're in. Most people did not see Jesus personally. Uh, they learned about Jesus. They came to know Jesus by hearing about Him through the testimony of others, the same way that you and I came to know about Jesus. So uh, Peter's writing to them. Peter had seen Jesus, and he's speaking to these Christians who had never physically seen him and he says you love him though we have not seen him we love him we don't see him today but we rejoice with joy our joy is inexpressible it's not just happiness it's not just a smile on our face it's joy that cannot be explained because it's so deep and so lasting goes to the very core of who we are you can't explain it to somebody who's not a christian you can't explain your joy as a follower of christ to someone who doesn't know him our joy is filled with glory. When we are filled with joy in the midst of trials, our joy brings glory to God. Because of our faith and belief, we are filled with joy. This brings glory to Christ Himself. We don't see Him now, but we will. One day, we will really see Jesus. Literally, physically, with our eyes, we will see Him. We asked a, a moment ago, what is the present experience of one who follows Jesus? What, what's it like from day to day to be a Christian? According to Peter, uh, Peter uh, a simultaneous experience of both grief and joy is normal in the Christian life. So as Christians, we simultaneously, walking through life, at the same time, we experience both grief and joy. And this is normal for a Christian. So if you're uh, maybe a weary Christian today, we all are at different points. I suspect many of us are today in, in one way or another. If you're weary, consider the hope that is offered to you in this passage on this Easter Sunday, that you have been born again in the resurrection of Jesus. Your inheritance awaits you in the future. It's guaranteed to you. Your present suffering, whatever it may be, 
It is brief, it's meaningful, and it produces joy. Now, I'd imagine uh, there are uh, people here today who don't know Christ. Uh, Maybe you came to church today because somebody invited you on Easter. Or maybe you're here uh, visiting family on spring break, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, We're we're happy that you're here uh, to hear uh, the good news of Jesus' resurrection today. I'll be really clear with you that the promises that we've read about today, the hope that we've read about, these things are written to Christians. They're written to people who are trusting in Christ. And uh, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, none of the hope that we have considered today applies to you. Um, You will encounter trials and difficulties in your life, just like we all will, but your experience now and your experience in the future will be very different uh, from that of someone who is trusting in Jesus. The good news is that the Bible invites you to become a follower of Jesus for the first time. In uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an offer. It's a promise that's there for you today. And when you respond in faith, when you turn away from your sins to follow Jesus, the truths that we've considered this morning, they immediately apply to you. You don't have to do anything further to earn them. They are given to you uh, by Christ himself. You've been born again, tied to Christ and his resurrection. Your inheritance is guaranteed. It's waiting for you. Your sufferings won't go away, but they'll be brief, limited to this lifetime. They become full of meaning and they produce joy. So if that is something that interests you, if you want to learn more about that, you can talk to any of the members of this church You can talk to me or one of the other elders. I'll be outside at the welcome table uh, after the service. You can come talk to me, and uh, we'd be happy to, uh, to share with you what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you today for the resurrection of your Son. Well, we know that all of our hope, any good that comes to us, from you, uh, whether it's now or in the future, we know that it all was made possible by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we thank you for what you've done for us. Father, I do pray for those who have never trusted in Christ. I ask that you would draw them to yourself today in faith and repentance. I pray for the church. I pray for each of us who belongs to you, each of us who is following in the footsteps of your son. We're seeking to be faithful disciples of Jesus. We've never seen him, but we love him. And we ask that you would encourage our hearts with the truth that we've considered today. May you receive great glory as a result. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior.